looking out at the room, it seems like people are beginning to make a home uh, here in this meditation hall. Uh, people definitely feel, get their cushions, they got their place. Uh, people look a lot more settled when they, than when you first arrived. So often what we discover uh, in the first couple days of a retreat, even for people who have been practicing for a while, but I think especially new folks, is that, um, that the idea of a retreat seems a lot better. <laughs> than the actuality of what the experience is. That can certainly change, and it usually does, actually, quite often. Uh, because the first two days, obviously, are quite uh, rough, kind of difficult in a lot of different ways. And we spoke this afternoon about the hindrances, so we don't have to keep talking about how hard it is. Um, but certain questions do come up. I know they came up occasionally in my own practice. Um, and the two questions that I think some come up, sometimes come up is, one, is it worth it? And secondly, if it is, how come? You know, why is it worth it? So I'd like to address uh, both of those questions tonight. The first is, is it worth it? I have to admit I'm extremely biased on this particular answer, and and I would say that I can answer it uh, wholeheartedly with four words. Yes. Yes. And yes, it's definitely worth it. But how come? And that's a much bigger question. You know, why is it worth it? Where does it lead? Where does it lead? I began this practice quite a, quite a while ago, in the, in the scheme of things at least. Not, not that long ago, but I was in my early 20s, and my hair was a different color. I was thinner and certainly a lot younger in so many ways. And I started practicing in the early 70s and really started practicing quite earnestly around 1974 when I went out to uh, this place called Naropa, which was just a Buddhist university. Um, that It was actually the first year. It, its inception was in 74. And by the time I arrived at Naropa, let's just put it this way, I was definitely in need of some meditation. I had um, been kind of a child of the late 60s and early 70s, and Larry and I sometimes, uh, he was a little bit older than me back then, uh, but we had some of the same similar experiences. I got an earlier start on the psychedelics and, and kind of, the, in many ways, a very chaotic uh, kind of quite chaotic, quite open space, a lot of experimenting. Um, but for me, it really led to a complete, in a sense, burnout. Just the, my, A lot of the choices I was making, obviously, were extremely unwise and very conditioned. And so when I came to the practice, there were an awful lot of obstacles. My mind was so congested and so tight. But I had two things going for me. Two things going for me. I mean, I had a lot of things to deal with, uh, to say the least. But I had two things going for me. And one was, 
an unambiguous desire for freedom and liberation from suffering. I mean, there was like not an ounce left in me at that point in my life in terms of being, of doubting my desire for that. I was extremely convinced that that's what I wanted to, uh, wanted to experience and experience peace, unconditioned peace. The second sort of conviction or I would say in some ways a strength that I had, um, which was that I realized, even at that age, that I was not going to be able to think my way out, that I was not going to be able to think my way to happiness. And that was a tremendous strength. It saved a lot of energy from that point on when I realized that I wasn't really going to be able to analyze or figure out or problem-solve or reflect or theorize my way out of this situation, that I needed something else. And I think in some ways, we all share that. We all share that understanding that, you know, you could be sitting home in your comfortable room, reading spiritual books, thinking about how wonderful Dharma and meditation is and how inspiring it is to read about other people's experiences. But that, I'm convinced, would only take you so far. I don't think that would lead to the kind of transformation. I don't think. I'm pretty sure of this. It would not lead to the kind of transformation that we're talking about in actual practice and that, that comes out of the actual doing of the practice itself. Many of us are very, very good at thinking. That's, that's the kind of intelligence that, for many of us, we've, it's been nurtured from day one, is how to think about things. But what Buddhism offers is something different, and, and why I felt so comfortable. I mean, at Naropa, I remember experimenting with different traditions. I would go to a Zen teacher. I went to Tibetan teachers. And I finally found a, a Vipassana practice. And to me, what I resonated about with Vipassana practice was, uh, in fact, to me, this was, it was a wonderful refuge because it was so straightforward and so simple and so kind of bare bones, and you just kind of just sat there, and you didn't repeat a lot of things or, or any of that. What you did and why I felt so comfortable and why it offered me what I was looking for was that it prioritized mindfulness, that other form of intelligence other than thinking. And so for me, I was willing to try that. I was convinced that I couldn't just solely think my way out of it. I needed to develop something else. I needed to be able to look at my experience, understand the nature of my suffering, understand the nature of freedom. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do it through just simply thinking about it, just figuring it out. And so in this particular practice, it's not that. We're not just sitting, sitting contemplating uh, the nature of life. We're taking a look at life. We're taking a look at life in a very, very direct way. And so what all of us are, are doing here, in, in, in many ways, what makes it somewhat challenging is that it's a new form of intelligence. It's an innate form of intelligence. It's there, for sure. But we haven't cultivated it that much. It hasn't been much of our education. It hasn't been, unfortunately, much of our training. It hasn't it isn't been part of our social life at all. 
So I'd like to talk a little bit about what mindfulness is and also some of the fruits that come out of it. This is a real, quite a large topic, and we could probably, in fact, a lot of the talks are really simply about that, just what comes out of mindfulness practice and where does it, where does it take us. Um, so what I'm saying here is that mindfulness is this innate form of intelligence. It's a power of mind. Unfortunately, it's innate, so that everybody in this room, everybody outside this room, has that capacity, has that form of intelligence. You don't have to go to school to get this kind of intelligence. You don't have to be born rich to have this kind of intelligence. It's innate in all beings. And what this kind of intelligence does, and I'll talk more about kind of how, how it's different than thinking, but what, mind, what mindfulness allows us to do is it allows us to open in a very direct way and to take a look at our experience in the here and now. allows us to take a look and see for ourselves what the nature of our experience is right now. Right now. In each moment of our life. What distinguishes it from thought, this kind of intelligence, or this kind of attention, is that so often, and this is something, some insight that arises uh, in our sitting practice when we begin to pay attention uh, to what our minds are actually doing, what we discover is that a lot of our thoughts are conditioned from the past. In fact, so often what's happening is the past is imposing itself on the present. That along the way we learn a lot of things. We learn a lot of, we develop a lot of ideas or a lot of attitudes about who we are and what's possible. Uh, We develop uh, lots of ideas about ourselves, self-image. We accumulate a lot of uh, ideas about things and they shape how we experience things in the present. They shape the way we experience things in the present. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is free of concept. It's free of the concepts of judging, of saying that this is a good experience or this is a bad experience. For instance, if you are mindful of being sleepy while you're sitting, mindfulness has absolutely not one drop of judgment. That form of attention has no judgment about the fact that you shouldn't feel sleepy or that that's not a good experience or that you're failing in the practice or that you shouldn't be here. That's not how mindfulness relates to sleepiness. That's how our thinking often can relate to sleepiness. But mindfulness literally meets the present moment with an open heart. In many ways, it's like, the, like I think about my niece who's a year old, and I, her heart is so open. You know, her heart is so open. And it's that quality of mindfulness that just meets experience with no fixed idea about what it is or what it should be, and it just meets it in a very, very fresh way. And that's an extremely powerful form of intelligence. It's not evaluating, criticizing our experience. It doesn't make uh, assessments of the experience that it's for or against. It meets restlessness. It meets discouragement or self-doubt. It meets feelings of peacefulness, feelings of joy. It meets it the same way. It just knows the experience. It's just being attentive to what's happening right now. It's very freeing. 
it allows us to begin to open to that experience in a fresh way. That's what's so powerful about mindfulness. That's why we can learn from our experience. A lot of times, and and as you begin to watch your mind, sometimes when you come into practice, you you think that you're a very creative, bright, intelligent person who has lots of interesting thoughts. And then when you start sitting, you see you're pretty boring, and a lot of thoughts are repetitive, and they don't go really any place in particular. They keep coming back over and over again. In fact, a lot of our thoughts are quite habitual. It doesn't mean that we don't have the potential for creative thinking. We definitely do. But what gives us the potential for creative thinking is awareness. It's awareness. In other words, being able to think in new ways requires being able to see in new ways. And so mindfulness gives us this capacity to discover for ourselves what the truth of our experience is. We don't have to rely on the voices of the past. We don't have to rely on secondhand knowledge. In fact, that's really what retreats are about. It's a statement. Everybody made this statement, whether you know it or not. I'm not going to rely on secondhand knowledge. I'm going to go and see for myself what this is about. And over and over again, that's what practice is all about. Meeting experience, taking a look at it for yourself, and discerning what the nature of that particular experience is or what the appropriate response is. So mindfulness allows us to begin to relate to the present in a fresh way. We begin to let go of this burden of the past and all our conditioning through the power of mindfulness. Again, we can't think our way out of our conditioning. It's very difficult. We need awareness. We need to begin to understand the mechanism of conditioning, how it functions in our life. We need to begin to, to understand how all these ideas about who we are, all these concepts about we who we are, are ideas that have been imposed on us, things that we've learned. Uh, So many of us are shackled, really, by what we think is possible. But most of us have no idea of what the fullest potential within us is. And that's because we haven't been trained in some ways to look for ourselves and to discover that for ourselves. So bringing fresh attention to the here and now That is the practice. That's the practice today. That's going to be the practice on the sixth day. Over and over again, it's meeting the present moment, meeting our experience with fresh attention. Anagarika Manindra, somebody that, a teacher of both Larry and myself, uh, and I believe Matthew, um, told me one time, I was was sitting with him on a three-month retreat, and I was getting kind of bored uh, watching my breathing. Uh, Sometimes it can get pretty boring and kind of dry. Uh, And This was like in the middle of it, and I was getting kind of bogged down. And uh, he was always very refreshing. He had a lot of fresh energy, very childlike in many, many ways. He always kind of looking at things and questioning and very open mind, extremely open mind. And what he told me, and I, I remember this 25 years later, which was, to see if I could relate to the breath, as each breath as though it was my first breath, you know, that I hadn't been there before. To have that kind of quality of attention, 
And I tried it, and it really helped a lot, where I tried to just receive the breath without any expectation, no agenda, just, oh, what's, what's happening here? Just, just experience it. Be open to what, what happens when you take an in-breath. Be open to what happens when you take an out-breath. One thing we talk a lot about at CIMC is how to bring mindfulness to daily activities. And, of course, that's exactly what we're talking about here, too. Um, taking things like washing your dishes or brushing your teeth or taking a shower uh, or sipping a cup of tea, uh, walking upstairs, going to the bathroom. Taking those kind of activities in bringing mindfulness, that form of intelligence, that light of intelligence, that light of awareness to that particular experience. It transforms the experience with practice. It trans- Instead of doing it with the attention divided, when the mind is thinking about other things that are more important, instead of getting caught by that, that creates division. It, it, it robs us of the energy and the joy in the activity itself. So by being present with it, a tremendous amount of self-transformation and learning can occur. And there are many, many stories in Buddhist traditions of people having deep enlightenment and awakening experiences in the middle of just the most ordinary kinds of activities. And the reason it's happening is not because of the activity, it's because of the quality of attention, that fullness of heart, that fullness of attention, that fullness of living, is what opens the mind. And with practice, it becomes easier to do that. Early on, it's quite difficult. You know, it takes a lot more effort. But with practice, developing that ability to move into whatever situation you're in, wherever you're in, whatever environment you're in, whatever activity you're engaged in, and to move into it in a very open, fresh way becomes part of what you get used to. You thrive in that environment. You don't want to be thinking about other things while you're doing something. And so you begin to turn your attention to what's happening rather than always thinking about what's happening in the next moment. You know, that's a chronic illness almost that we have in this society is always looking for the next moment, kind of in a desperate hope in a way that it's going to be better than what's happening now. So settling into the present moment is extremely fulfilling and this. Uh, so much creative potential that gets unleashed. So many, we open to other possibilities of relating to the experience when we bring mindfulness to the situation. Sometimes when we talk about mindfulness, there can be a misunderstanding about what that attention means. And a lot of people will think, Well, mindfulness means you're sitting there watching yourself wash the dishes. Or you're sitting there watching yourself sip a cup of tea. Or you're sitting there watching yourself breathe. And early in practice, quite often, it does feel kind of self-conscious. You can be aware of this watching mentality. But with practice, and that's why we always keep saying, go back to the feeling quality. You know, go back to what the experience actually feels like. Because when you begin to do that, in other words, when you notice that there's this watching going on, 
See if you can move closer and just experience the actual breath itself, the feeling quality of that breath. Or sit when you're sipping a cup of tea and you're watching yourself, feel the weight of the cup. Feel the wetness of the tea, the heat of the tea. In other words, get close. And, and so the quality of attention that, with mindfulness is one of intimacy. You're developing intimacy with the experience, not distance. Not this kind of detached watching. That would be no fun. Guarantee it. If we were developing this distant detachment to everything in our life, life would be really dry and not spontaneous and very, very unjoyful. We want to begin to let that go. And that means, in some ways, letting go of the observer. And over time, that does happen, is that the observer itself begins to fade. It loses its power. Because the observer is, of course, always commenting and always judging. The observer is actually thought about the experience. With mindfulness, you're going deeper. You're digging deeper. You're going to the actual experience itself, rather than the evaluation and the commenting or the criticism or all the judgments that we have about the experience, which, of course, is what the observer is doing. Observing you. Do your practice. Well, that's thought. That's not mindfulness. So every moment of mindfulness, we develop this ability to be more and more intimate with our experience. Now, when we talk about intimacy, to me, that's... uh, that goes to a lot of the qualities that we're looking for, that we want to cultivate in mindfulness. Just think about what it means to be intimate with somebody else, the kind of qualities that, that are required of us to be intimate uh, with somebody else, and then we'll transfer that to being intimate with yourself. Being intimate with somebody. Now, if we say we're in a conversation with somebody that we're close to, okay, and that there's a certain degree of intimacy already there, but we're kind of preoccupied and we're thinking about other things and that person is talking to us. Is there intimacy in that moment? I don't think so. No. We all know that too. We, we all have been on both ends of the conversation. The one talking who's not being listened to and the one who is... One is talk, and the one who is not doing the listening, is that, is that it? Is that the other side of it? Right. The one who's not doing the listening who's thinking about other things. Uh, we're all subject to that. But you can see, if you develop sensitivity, I'm sure everybody is aware of this and has had this experience many, many times. I know as a teacher, I get that a lot. A lot of people not listening. Uh, and, you know, and I want them to listen. Uh, so there's a disconnect there, right? There's a gap. There's, there's uh, separation because your, your attention is divided. Now, if you have a particular agenda for what that person should be saying or how they should be acting, there's not a lot, I can tell you this for a fact, there's not a lot of intimacy in that particular moment, okay? There's no connection. The person's going to know it. They're going to feel your agenda. And there's, again, the tension and the separation there, rather than just, say, listening or just simply being present for somebody. Of course, that's one of the best things you can do anybody on the planet is to be present with them. That's the wonderful thing about mindfulness is it does enable you to be more present with others. It's wonderful. It's the way to live life. Actually, it's the way to be in relationship. It's the only way it makes sense. And I don't mean just people you really love and you're really close to, but I mean being present with people you encounter, being present on the subway, sitting there taking the train into the city. You can be present 
or you could be somewhere else. Which is going to be more satisfying? Which is going to have more energy? Which, what's going to feel more whole, more healthy? Well, of course, being present. Even if it's an unpleasant experience, it's still better to be present because there's some potential for, tr- for transformation when you're present. When you're, not, when you're lost and disconnected, caught in that world of thought, you're stuck in the past. Change is impossible. The thing that we have to be careful, though, is while we're talking about the positive qualities of mindfulness, and there are many, and there are, of course, many difficulties uh, and many limitations with the universe of thinking, it's extremely important to get this one. And this, this, this one can take 20 years, so try to get it faster than that because uh, it's not that complicated. Uh, your thoughts are not your enemy. If thoughts are coming up in your practice, it does not mean you're a bad meditator. And the goal of practice is not to get rid of your thoughts. The goal of this practice is not to get rid of your thoughts. You need to be able to think. You're definitely going to need to be able to think when you leave here. And you're also going to need to keep the practice going when you leave here, too. So the goal, we don't want to create an enemy of, for instance, the wandering mind, or the mind that's thinking about things, or fantasizing, or planning. But what we want to do, though, is learn to relate to that thinking with mindfulness, rather than being caught by it, with mindfulness. In other words, non-judging attention to thought. Literally, try doing that tomorrow in your practice. Try meeting thought without any judgment, without any negative judgment at all. It's just simply non-judgmental attention to thinking. In other words, thoughts are not bad. They're not your enemy. But the commitment is to be mindful of them and not to get rid of them. When the mind is caught up in thought, ah, thinking is occurring. Back to the body. No more complicated than that. Extremely liberating. The fact is that thought can become a friend. It can become quite useful to us. It's a useful form of intelligence. But it's much more useful when it's infused with mindfulness when it's infused with awareness. When awareness is not part of our thinking, and all we have to do is take a look at the world, and we have a very vivid example, countless examples of just that, that wars, separation, hostility, violence, hatred, those are all products, those are all expressions of thought that are that have an absence of awareness. That's, when, that's being caught in the world of thought. That's being caught in the conditioning from the past, in things that we've learned. Thought creates separation so often between ourselves and others. And mindfulness begins to overcome that separation. It's wonderful quality about mindfulness because as we relax and settle in as we begin to trust mindfulness more. As it gets stronger, we feel less and less separate. It's almost a mystery how that happens, but we feel less and less separate from each other. We feel less disconnected from our bodies because we're present. 
We feel our bodies. We feel less disconnected from the environment that we're in. We're connecting to the world that we're in. There's a connection. It's not a withdrawal or disconnect. You know, retreats kind of, in some ways it is, you are disconnecting in some ways from your uh, everyday life outside of here. But it's very temporary. These are unusual conditions. For many of us, really, in some ways, artificial conditions. We're not, we're not, this isn't what our life looks like for most of us. Quite, quite a bit different. Um, but it's temporary, and it's a training. And it's, it's, it, in this particular structure, it's a proven testing ground. It's a proven ground for cultivating just this form of intelligence of mindfulness. Because we don't have to think that much. So now is a time to decide, okay, I'm going to use this time simply to try to be more mindful, to develop that form of intelligence. So that when, and what that means is, I'm not going to dwell in thought. I'm not going to consciously dwell in thought. When thought arises, it's not an enemy, but I'm not going to feed it. I'm not going to jump into that fantasy head over heels and spend the next two and a half hours totally gone, totally somewhere else. I'm going to recognize that I'm fantasizing. You're back in the present moment, and right now the method is to acknowledge that without judging it, but then to return to the body. And to me, the genius of the Buddha, many aspects of his brilliance, really, uh, but certainly one aspect of it is um, that he didn't just say, okay, be mindful. Sit down and be mindful. I mean, if you came to this retreat and you just said, okay, sit there and be mindful. Say you're all brand new, you didn't know anything. You haven't read any books or anything. And we said, okay, sit down and be mindful. There wouldn't be that many people in the hall right now. Most of you would probably leave. Because you'd be wondering what the heck we're doing. What do we mean by being mindful? What are we supposed to pay attention to? What does this mean? And of course, it, it would, for most of us, since we're so used to thinking, we would just be sitting there trying to figure things out. Uh, so mindfulness, um, so the retreat is really a time to say, wait a second, um, let's, let's just begin to pay attention to our experience. Let's begin to pay attention in a very open-hearted way to what our experience is. We're feeling miserable, we're feeling miserable. Join the crowd. You know, sometimes we feel miserable. Other times we feel happy. Lunchtime comes. Happiness. <laughs> Lunchtime over. Unhappiness. 215 bell. Unhappiness. 945 bell. Happiness. Okay. Happiness is very conditional. It changes. Unhappiness is very conditional. And so living life means that we human beings, for most of us, are subject to those conditions. Get to know yourself. That self-knowing process is noticing how we're relating to the conditions as they're unfolding. We don't have to be embarrassed by it. We don't have to sit in judgment over ourselves for how we're relating. In fact, as Larry said the other, other night, uh, humility is a big piece of this practice. And uh, the quicker you can develop humility, the better off you're going to be. And also, having a sense of humor uh, crucial, absolutely crucial. If you're going to be hanging out with yourself, uh, you better get a, uh, You better start cultivating a little bit of a sense of humor. 
Because if you take yourself too seriously, hey, you're in for trouble. What's interesting about humility is when you begin to practice, life teaches you humility. It's not like some ideal life teaches you. And oftentimes the what teaches us humility in this in this particular tradition, this particular practice of waking up to mindfulness is is just waking up to just how strong our conditioning is. Even after practicing for a while, just how strong habit is and how deeply socialized and conditioned we've been to to kind of go into automatic pilot when certain conditions come together. Uh, to me, one of the best examples, a few of you may have heard this story before. It's a, I think it's an okay one, though. Um, as I said, I was into the Dharma fairly early in the early 70s, mid-70s, and I came on staff at IMS in the, during the late, late 70s and early 80s. And, of course, Dharma wasn't so popular in the, in the center was on a much smaller scale. There was only like 12 of us working here and uh, there weren't as many retreats. Um, and so there was a much more free time when you were on staff. Uh, a lot more free time to get into trouble, basically. Uh, and so one of my buddies on staff uh, suggested that we take up tennis. He had played tennis and I had never, I didn't grow up playing tennis. Uh, so he said, you know, there's some tennis courts down in downtown Barrie. Let's play tennis. So, you know, it sounded like a good good thing to do at lunchtime and you know, late afternoon. Kind of get into your body, do something, get out of your mind and get away from this center. Uh, get into something a little bit different. Uh, so we started playing tennis and I just loved it. You know, we, we both really started having a great time. We were having a lot of fun. Uh, and we were coming back from our tennis, tennis game and uh, we started talking about it as a small community. And so things get contagious quite quickly. Uh, so our enthusiasm uh, was getting caught, you know, people were catching our enthusiasm and started going down with us. There were several um, courts down there. So we started uh, playing. A lot of people were starting that, like two or three, four different uh, couples, two different pairs of tennis players were going down. And pretty soon somebody had this brilliant idea that we should have a tournament. Uh, since we're doing this, why not do something constructive? Like, let's have a tournament. And let's start competing. Uh, and that, of course, sounded like a great idea, you know, bring a little bit more interest to uh, this experience. So we started a tournament, and people charted it out. And, you know, if you've ever seen those charts, you, you always wiggle down to one person left standing. And that's how it went. So we got into this tournament, and we started playing. And, of course, under those conditions, um, you, what, what started getting provoked, of course, was our conditioning. And our competitive natures were coming out. And, you know, our yogi nature. Oh, yeah, you know, everything's okay. Uh, that really started, uh, you know, disappearing very quickly. And pretty soon we were out there sweating and really out to get the person. Uh, and uh, a lot of determination to get the other person and win. Uh, and, you know, finally, after a couple of weeks, somebody finally won. The tournament was over. And everybody retired the tennis rackets. <laughs> they just put it away. We all put it away because we burnt ourselves out. We, like, killed all the joy that was in tennis. You know, I'd probably still be playing tennis today. 
you know, and, and so what we did was we turned something that was joyful and playful and fun and kind of adventurous into something that was more than that. It was, there was a lot of ego, obviously, involved, and a lot of our own uh, unconscious tendencies were coming out. And, you know, I say this story because we were meditators, you know, and very committed meditators uh, for, for some time. And nobody in the group noticed what we were doing. Nobody realized that it was kind of going downhill and that we weren't enjoying it as much. And in fact, when the winter came, we did the same thing with ping pong. (laughs) The exact same thing. We started playing. We turned it into a tournament. I even remember that I won the tournament. (laughs) Didn't win the tennis. I won the ping pong. And I got a little trophy. And then we stopped playing ping pong. And these are true stories. And... Fortunately, the second time around, in the aftermath, we had time to reflect. Finally, awareness of mindfulness springs out of the delusional mind. And we saw you know, that we don't need to do that all the time with each other. You know, maybe, maybe we can relax and enjoy things instead of making something out of it. Maybe we don't have to keep repeating the same mistake over again. And so there was a lesson in that. But it took a while. It took a while to, to see that conditioning and to see kind of... And this isn't anti-competition. It's not to say that competition is bad and you can't compete and all of that. But it obviously was having a negative impact on us and taking a lot of the joy out of that particular activity. And so out of that comes humility, quite frankly. Seeing that, you know... Uh, it takes a while. It takes a while. You have to be patient with yourself. You have to learn how to be kind with yourself. Uh, Not to set the bar too high. You know, it's not that liberation is impossible, but take it easy. Take it easy on yourself. Um, Find that wise effort, one that's both gentle and kind and loving, while at the same time, keep showing up. Keep showing up. Keep nurturing mindfulness. Restraining that impulse to go off into that world of thought. But notice when you go off into that world of thought. And and come back to the body. That's the genius of the Buddha. He gave a method. He gave us a fighting chance, is how I see it, quite frankly. And he said, okay, well, if mindfulness isn't something strong in me, how can I develop it? How can I cultivate this awareness of the present moment? How can I grow this, this uh, awareness, this intelligence, this wisdom? And what he said was, okay, let's just at least sit down and pay attention to what it feels like to sit down. First foundation of mindfulness. We'll talk more about the four foundations later. First foundation of mindfulness, the awareness of the body. If we opened up the instructions, we started the instructions on the third foundation of mindfulness, which is thought and mental states. We're already opening it up a little bit, talking about the need to acknowledge it and to be mindful of thought, but then to go back to the body. But if the focus of the practice was simply to try to be mindful of your thoughts, it'd be a very difficult practice. It'd be a lot harder, actually, 
and being mindful of the breathing or mindful of the body touching the cushion and coming into your body with, with a mindfulness practice. In other words, anchoring your attention. Because the, 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 the genius, I think, of this, of this practice and the genius of the Buddha, I think, is just that it gives us a chance to cultivate that form of intelligence. Let it get stronger. And that's what we're doing in, these, in this phase of the retreat, is we're giving ourselves a chance. We're narrowing the focus of attention on the body so that more concentration can develop and so that we give it a chance for mindfulness to grow and strengthen. We're nurturing this kind of really early stages of, of intelligence. And so by strengthening it, we then can begin to include all the experiences in our life and begin to apply mindfulness to any experience that you have, whether it's a particular emotion, a mind state, a reaction that you're having, sounds, physical pain in the body, whatever the experience is, all of those are worthy of mindfulness. All of those can be sources of insight. All of those can be sources of liberation. But one has to make that effort, or that intention anyways, to say, okay, I have some humility here. You know, I, I know I'm not always mindful. I know I need to pay my dues. I need, I, I, and I have a method here, which is let's just stay in the body. That's essentially the, the, the exercise right now. That's, the, that's the, the method is just stay in your body, predominantly with your breathing. But when you're moving about, you're doing other things and you're engaging in activities, remember to just rest the attention in your body in a very relaxed way. Stay very connected to what, your, what the experience of your body is. And out of that, that form of intelligence gets stronger. It becomes easier to remember to be mindful. It becomes a resource that we can call on at times when uh, conditions might not be so easy. Situation might be more complicated. But then we have this form of intelligence that we've developed, not just able to think about a particular experience, but now we can just pay attention to the experience in a silent way, which is what mindfulness allows us to do. Listen silently to what's happening. And then if we need to think or figure something out or problem solve later when our life gets more complicated, we have the silence piece. We've, we've put in our time. We have that silent listening, receptive mode where we can actually look at the experience in a fresh way and then if we need to problem solve or figure out or need to make a choice or a life decision, then that silent attention that's letting us know what's happening right now can then inform us on, on what the best action to take is. Let's sit for a couple minutes. <laughs> 